Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I am Russell Tovey. And I'm Robert Diamond. And this is Talk Art. Welcome to Talk Art. How are you today, Robert? Today, Russell, I am feeling like a protagonist. Oh, okay. In a uh, story, perhaps autobiographical story, but also autofiction um, is a word which I have read uh, being associated with today's guest work. And it got me thinking about the, the blurring lines between what you may imagine versus what your actual reality is and how the two blur in everybody's everyday actual like existence. <laughs> and sometimes we, we tell ourselves, you know, stories of, of how we're experiencing things um, as a way of kind of surviving, I guess, through through the world that we experience before us, Mm -hmm. um, which at times can obviously be very traumatic. And um, the thing I've always loved about art is that I feel like figurative painting in particular can really take me on a on a journey through other people's autobiographies and their stories. And and I think that's one of the things that first drew me to art. And today's guest um, grew up in Karachi, Pakistan, and is an artist that you know very well because you curated an exhibition um, at Grimm Gallery in London, which included one of their works. And it was the work in the show for me that resonated the most. And I, I almost wanted to buy it, but I couldn't um, well, People did make... think it was you at one point. They did. People I said even to me, is that people... Rob in the bath? Precisely. Yeah. So those... The, the autofiction there kind of was uh, was a real thing, um, <laughs> but um, it's it's a work that really meant a lot to me, and I, I look at it a lot. I actually have it on my phone. And um, uh, today's guest studied um, in in Yale and um, is based uh, some of the time, I think, in in New Haven, um, Connecticut, and their work is just wonderful because of the intimacy and the, the portraits that are presented not only of of humans but also of non-humans of animals and um i think that's another side that you and i love russ love. so we are very very proud to introduce and welcome to the podcast Fizzer-Catry. hi Fizza. hi how lovely to be here are you are you well we find you in connecticut as rob said you're based in connecticut now yes Yes, I'm in New Haven. I'm at home. And yeah, I'm good. I'm uh, sort of getting, I think I'm like transitioning from like summer mode of like absolute lack of structure and routine and just like all around chaos into like now being like, okay, what does my life look like now in the fall? You know, what are, what are we practicing? So yeah, it's it's a bit of a transition moment, but it, it feels it feels good. It feels like new new groundedness is coming in my life and in my practice. So this chaos comes off the back of recently graduating from Yale and also being in education during yeah. COVID and having all of that mm-hmm. energy and anxiety while you're trying to get an education in art. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, I, I think I was lucky um on the COVID front because when I started in the fall of 2021 that was when a lot of COVID restrictions I think worldwide and institutionally at Yale and at least all over the U.S. were really lifting um so things were happening in person again you know we were all masked and there was a lot of sort of you know restrictions on like more social kind of I would say the life of of the school at least but regarding kind of being in the studio and being present with the cohort and being present within sort of the spaces of learning, I think I sort of entered at that moment where there was like the perfect opening. And then I think increasingly since then, it kept like all of the restrictions kept lifting up until my graduation. And so you found yourself in Connecticut, New Haven. 
Uh, New Haven, Connecticut. Is it the where? No, Connecticut in New Haven. New Haven, in New Haven, Connecticut. Yeah. Thank you, thank you for that. Um, yes. Yes. So you found yourself there. Is that an artistic community there? And why? Why has that been the destination for you to settle in for the meantime? Yeah, I mean, so I think New Haven is really interesting in that way because, I mean, I, I, I will confess most of what I know of New Haven comes like through the context of Yale. So I can't speak for sort of. Like, like, I think during the time that I've been in New Haven, I've been so embedded in, like, the, the university context of the institution that it's been sort of hard to really get to know the city outside of that. I'm curious about that as I, as I sort of stay on in the city. Um, but what I am interested in and curious about is, I think recently, and I think this is maybe like a pandemic kind of, um, like, like, after effect, that a lot of students... 2020 onwards in particular, who graduated from the Yale program, decided to stay back in the city because, you know, in the middle of the pandemic, moving was so disruptive and difficult and maybe even impossible at that time. And there is a community of artists here. There's Next Haven Studios, um, the residency program and gallery, which Dykes Kafar started, I believe, in 2019. I could be wrong about that, 2018, 2019, thereabouts. So I think there's been, like, a bit of an impetus to, like, increasingly for people to stay back um and that is you know again just what i know of like the yale context i'm sure there's like a much greater context of artists here in the city that i'm just not plugged into at this time but yeah i think for me staying back sort of has been nice to try and build something in new haven while i've been here because i moved to the u.s for grad school from pakistan so I don't, you know, at this point have any roots in any other part of the U.S., but it feels like having spent two years in New Haven, like there is a possibility of like building something that feels more than just sort of being in like a graduate program. And like the proximity to New York is amazing and the cheaper prices are amazing. You know, it feels sustainable. It feels like something can grow off of it. So we're, we're currently talking to you from what looks like your your home, I'm guessing. And um, mm-hmm. I think that's quite uh, apt because your work is so personal and often goes to very close quarters and the intimate space. Um, how come that was your approach? Like, do you have a, a moment where you suddenly realised, I want to sort of share my story in this very intimate way? I don't think that was a moment. I think it really came out of my interest in observation and in working from observation, you know, like that's when I, when I sort of started oil painting, that was when I was an undergrad. Um, I was obsessed with working from observation. Like that's all I wanted to do. Like I was just painting my studio over and over again, like all the junk that would accumulate in there, like coffee, you know, like just sort of the floor, like I would move things around. I would sort of find things as they are and repaint them. And I think I really kind of felt committed to this practice of, looking really closely at my environment and like finding things, like finding sort of, you know, like things of visual interest, like light conditions, texture, surface, um, you know, the detritus of like a lived experience, how it can be like a point of storytelling. Um, And also like, I think when I sort of went back home after my undergrad, I think that really turned into also like social conditions and, the spaces that I was moving in, the friends that I was making, the relationships that we were in, the spaces we were building together. So I think it, it really sort of is founded in this practice of just paying very like deep and close attention to my environment and 
sort of seeing what's there because I think I, I do believe that, you know, you can kind of like find larger structural conditions sort of within like the everyday, within like the moments that you pass through, that you meet other people in the way that we relate to each other, the spaces that we're in. Um, so I think to, to me, it kind of, it is about the personal, but then it also speaks to these larger forces or relationships. And I think I, I kind of go back and forth between them constantly. As an artist, do you ever switch off then if you're if you're like work is your lived experience do you like i know as an actor i I retain information i think i can use that i like that facial expression someone did or the way that someone had a cadence of speech there or this experience i can hold on to that emotion as an artist when you're walking around and your work is autobiographical to an extent do you find that you're ever not fully present because you're thinking oh this would be a good image oh i like the idea where this light is that is so interesting I actually think I am the most present when I'm painting from observation. I was actually talking to someone about this, but like painting from observation is like such a, you know, I mean, you can use the word meditative, mindful. Like, I think those are the associations that come to mind for me. Um, you know, like it's so much about this sort of relationship between me, the surface, the the thing that I'm looking at and having this experience with. And just like a translation of that, like materially, it's so embodied and, like my mind sort of switches off. Um, I don't think I'm, I'm not usually walking around and thinking of paintings. Like, like I, I think that doesn't necessarily happen. Um, I think ideation is interesting to me, like sort of thinking about that. I, I, I can't say I fully understand how it happens. I think things get absorbed and retained and then sort of, you know, um, come up at, at, like interestingly and, there's both control over that and there isn't yeah it's a confusing and fascinating thing i think i've also read that you you, you say you f- feel closer to someone after you've painted them which obviously feels obvious in a certain extent because you are spending this really intimate time with someone but i really love that idea that someone who can be your close friend as soon as you paint them and you have that time together you feel like you they're kind of part of you more yeah i mean i think Painting people from observation is a really intense experience. It's, it's interesting to me, like, walking into, like, museums also and seeing, like, sort of so many, like, paintings, you know, of, like, anonymous, like, nude models and where, like, the body is really treated as, like, an object often. And to me, that's, like, unfathomable, like, because I think just, like, that close encounter with another body, with another human being, or even if it's not a human being, a non-human or even an environment can be like so intense and, and has to be sort of intentional. And there's so much communication there. There's so much sort of checking in. There's just a lot like in the relationship of that happens during the painting process and also through the act of really closely looking at someone, like every aspect of their feature, their presence, their body, their energy, the way light hits different parts of their like face or body, you know, and like, kind of just like staring at it for that long. I think you really feel that in your paintings as well. There's a real charge between like the the paintbrush, which represents you, I guess, and and what, what you're seeing in the painting. And I think that really activates the viewer. Like for me, when I'm looking at your work, I feel like I'm there, you know, like in that space, whether it be like a hair salon or whether it be on the steps outside or in a restaurant, you know, there's all these different locations or even the bath, you know, the one of Stefano, um, Stefano from the from the Grimm show and but the thing for me that I wanted to ask you about was about light because 
there's a lot of use of natural light, like in the water of the bath, for example. But also at times you have, um, you know, like actual light bulbs in the paintings themselves. And I feel like there's a real shift in your work between the natural light and then the unnatural kind of, um, you know, electric light, if you will. Yeah. I'm trying to remember which painting has a light bulb in this moment. Oh, there's there's um, one of um, a person sitting opposite you, I think, in a restaurant, and there's a kind of um, Chinese oh, like uh, yes. lantern, yeah. exactly. Yes. I think it's called Ming yes. Court, Queen of Ming Court. Mm-hmm. Queen of Ming Court, yes. yes, yes yeah, but then there's also other portraits that I. I sort of interpreted as being um, indoors light, perhaps, like um, Umea, um, portrait of a person called Umea. Umea, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think light really kind of sets the tone in so many ways, mm. you know? Like, like, I'm sort of thinking about this as, as you're talking. I think that's an interesting observation. I, I am, I'm very sort of aware to like the specific like conditions in like a moment or in a space. And I think there's something about like, like in the Ming court portrait, for instance, like there's something about sort of, you know, like red Chinese lantern, like sort of incandescent, like indoor lights, like how like bright and like almost like sterile they are, but then this like vaguely like quote unquote like Chinese like decor that is sort of trying to set like a certain vibe and how also particular that is to like a certain experience of like you know growing up in Karachi for me maybe maybe other places as well um but it really to me like sets the tone of that space and like what it sort of feels like to inhabit that space and to be in it and to be bathed in that light and that sort of like you know general vibe so to speak I, I do think light is really difficult to work with, you know, like, like I find it challenging and, and that excites me um, and that draws me to it as well. I, I think I sort of am more, I'm definitely more drawn to like natural light. I think it also speaks to like a relationship with the sun or with sort of, you know, the environment, like an outdoor, indoor kind of a conversation. Um, but then I think some painting sort of, you know, that like bright, crazy incandescent light kind of really carries the tone of it. I mean, there's the other painting of Umer as well with the plant. Um, and it's got this amazing kind of yellow curtain behind. And for th- th- that for me was one of the reasons I asked the question, because um, in that one, you're in an interior space, but it's lit from behind by natural sunlight, maybe right. the setting sun or something. And you feel this real intensity of atmosphere. And it, I, I just felt like it was a very unique approach somehow. Yeah, I mean, to me, that, that also sort of speaks to my interest in color, I think, you know, like like telling sort of a story through color and how color is like inextricable from light as well. Mm. Um, sort of using color to tell the story of not just like the particularity of like a moment in time, like the day, the place, the like location, the way light enters the space, as you say, in that painting in particular, you know, which is a space that I'm very intimate with, it's like my older sibling's house. Um, and they have had these sort of yellow curtains for several years now. And during the daytime, like that room is just like bathed in this like beautiful, beautiful warm light that is just filtering. Like it's like the outside light that's filtering in, inside the space through like the curtains, you know, so like the psychological sort of element of that space, but also like the particular associations of that physical location and the way that light functions in that physical location at particular times of the day. I think color, but color and light becomes a way to sort of like point to this whole thing. 
I'd love to go back about talking about then this closeness you feel when you paint a subject and if that relates to when you paint yourself. Because when I first discovered your works in person and when I was like, I'm a huge fan, was there was a, a three self-portraits that felt very playful. They were playing with gender. They were playing with stereotypes. And these were in New York at the Clemente Center uh, in, a sh- in a group show that's called Don't Pretend You Can't Hear. And these three are you looking at us direct, but they're, they've got these incredible titles. Uh, they're all self-portrait, but one is uh, self-portrait uh, as an otter, which is, uh, according to Stefano in brackets, which is um, uh, like a queer terminology for a certain type of gay man. I think I myself might be an elder otter. Uh, there's self-portrait <laughs> as fuckboy which is, is I, I love that title, and then self-portrait as background. And these these are really playing, they're you, but you're playing with this gender and stereotype and painting yourself. What does that reveal to you more every time you do that? And can we talk about this series of works? Because for me, they, they blew my mind. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, that portrait series has been... Um, has been very playful, has been very fun. So I, I, I guess I can, I can answer that question by sharing kind of where it came from, you know? Like, it, I really started that series when I came to Yale, and prior to that, had sort of been producing all of those, um, the portraits of a lot of my friends. You know, some of them were from observation, some of them were not, but they were all sort of people that I was really intimate with in my life back in Karachi. And I think when I came to Yale, I kind of really started thinking about like the politics of representation, like what it would mean to continue depicting those people from that context in this new context that I found myself in, you know, with a new audience, with a new gaze. Um, And I think it it sort of, I think I, I really felt paralyzed by a lot of those questions. Like I think, I think about the project of representation a lot and I think it's a really important project, but I also think it's one that for me as an artist, you know, I, I want to engage with, I want to engage with, in with a lot of responsibility and care and, and thought and consideration. And so I think what, where the portraits kind of came from was turning the gaze back onto myself. Like I had done self-portraits before, but I really in that moment felt like the figure that I wanted to and was able to depict the most was myself. You know, and I mean, grad school is such a time of like thinking about the self and and what that entails and what that's composed of and what the self kind of gravitates towards and how you represent yourself as well. And I remember making the first self-portrait, which was self-portrait as fuckboy, kind of based off of a drawing that I had made earlier and just kind of like being in my studio and cracking myself up, you know, like I was just working on it and I was just like, like, like I'd make a stroke and then I'd just like crack up and take a pause and then get back to it. Um, it was just like such a lighthearted, fun way of thinking about representation that was sort of still tied to like all of my interests around like gender, around sort of representing, uh, representation of all, you know, of the self, of other people. Um, where like the boundaries of the self are. I think that was a real question in that series. Like, how do you determine where the self kind of ends, you know, whether that's temporally, like in terms of like a future past or present self, but also in terms of like the self's relationship to other bodies or the people that you come into contact with or the environments that you are part of. I think it became about like fantasy and and sort of like 
and, and, and play and like being in disguise and, and sort of not being um, fixed, you know, it's like performative like as well. Slippery. I found them very performative. It's very performative. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, definitely. You know, and, and I started thinking a lot about sort of like masculinity and my relationship to masculinity because most of the, I think most of the self-portraits that I've made, you know, other than a few sort of present me as like a masculine, like stereotype. You know, there's one that I'm working on, which is a self-portrait of me as my father. And that has been interesting to think about what does it mean to become like a parent and like which parent do you become um, and who, which parent are you most like and how that can also be gendered or not. Um, but it's also a way to think about my relationship with him and to sort of like, you know, contend with that within the space of painting. Um, so yeah, it's been, it's been, it's been performative, fun, all of those things. Do you consider a gaze as a painter then, as an artist, do you consider wh- whose gaze it is that would be looking at this work? When you said about earlier about having a responsibility uh, to uh, identity and everything, do you consider a queer gaze on the work? And then did you also consider a, a, a non-queer gaze on the work? Does that enter your mindset when you're creating? I think it's more specific than that. I think a lot about my community and what that is. Um, and I think, I, I I heard Tavares Strachan talk about this recently, um, in which he was talking about audience and like you know how he thinks about audience in his work. And he said like you know your audience can be like one person, like it can be like your cousin, your aunt, your best friend, someone who's passed away. Um, it can be like one person that you're through the work you're kind of in conversation with, and the rest of the world can be kind of like watching you have that conversation in the work. Um, and I really think about how for me, like my audience is first and foremost on always like my community, you know, and what that is will probably keep changing throughout my life. But like, mm. you know, they're really where the work comes from. They're really the people who inform the work, um, who sort of inform my concerns, who make me possible in every way. And I think they are in a lot of ways the primary audience for my work. And then other people can sort of like, you know, maybe not so much watch us have a conversation, but, but, but I'm sort of happy to invite other people in on that. It's interesting, that idea of a community so direct as well, because in a way, like if you think of a queer community, it, but it's becoming a kind of global um, thing, thanks to us being able to talk like this, you know, <laughs> across countries through your computer and Instagram and all of these platforms, obviously. But I, I really feel like I, I felt, connected to your work as a queer person living you know in the UK even and even though it's not my direct experience it's like I have a shared empathy for it and I think that's such a beautiful thing that it can become such a global connection in a way in some ways there's 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 acts of generosity that we all as creatives share with each other especially in today's climate the way things are going it's it's almost a bit like a hello like you're not you're not alone yeah yeah, you know what I mean like through the painting itself yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that. I mean, I, I think, I think I definitely want the paintings to feel inviting, you know, like, like I, I think I want the surface of the painting to feel inviting. And I think I, I sort of, the, the reason why I paint and, and what sort of I find the most compelling about painting is I, I think you were saying earlier that it's like an extension of me and 
I think I, I sort of really think of it as like an extension of my Dutch, you know, it's, it's like, it's a sensory experience to make a painting. And I think it's a sensory experience to receive a painting. So on an embodied level, there really is a lot of exchange happening um, in the encounter with painting. And actually sensory experiences in a way are so important because if you think of like the painting where you've cut your hair and then you see the sink, like it's a kind of moment that often that, that hair would just get picked up, thrown away, washed away, whatever. And it would be very, um, you know, just a moment that passes. But I find that such an amazing painting because it's so much an extension of you because it's actually, you know, the hair. It's like the DNA connection in a way to the body, but it becomes this beautiful spread out kind of um, almost like a star star system or something. Yeah, <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it becomes yeah. this kind of, I don't know, just such a bigger idea. Can you speak a bit about hair in the work? And it, it, not, not even just that work, because I feel like hair is a thread that runs throughout the work. Yeah, I mean, you know, self-portraits, um, so many of the portraits as well. I, I made this one portrait of um, two figures, like the, the backs of the heads of two figures. Yes, um, yeah, yeah. And so many people, I, I find this so surprising, so many people have, you know, at, at, in, in some context mentioned to me, oh yeah, the, that painting of two women, you know? And I'm like, are either of them women? I'm not sure. <laughs> um you know, like, like, I think it's, it's sort of a way to, to speak about, again, like how gender is coded, like, and, and read mm-hmm. um, within the body um, and how it's perceived more, more than anything else, how it's perceived, how it's performed. I think so much of queerness is performed through like hair and like a presentation with hair. It's like a creative act to me, like, like, a, like a, a, a sort of, you know, like the way like tattoos are, like it's like a, a taking like ownership of the body or like having a say in how it's presented to the world and, and what gets to be on it and a part of it. And I think hair also is, I think symbolically can be such a meaningful thing, right? Like getting a haircut. Like like I was at the, the MoMA recently and looking at the Frida Kahlo um, painting of the, the, you know, of her up in the chair uh, wearing Diego Rivera's clothes and she's just got her hair and, it's like all around her and it's just I mean it's a self-portrait that I love and go back to often and, and feel sort of in kinship with in a lot of ways like this sort of like act of like you know being like that's it I'm taking ownership over my body I'm making a decision I'm making a change and this is like a really immediate embodied way of kind of doing that yeah to me it's it's it, it can be a, it's really powerful and I think the word kind of engages with that both as like a creative act of like becoming of like the self sort of like constantly being in a state of becoming and changing and and sort of being allowed to change um and also this like really decisive moment of action it's also control i guess like in a way I, i saw a young artist in margate who's just shaved their head recently and i remember looking at them and just being like they, they looked so free and so confident compared to how I've seen them in the past. And I felt like there was this real act of reclamation of themselves through the, the act of shaving the head. And then I watched that amazing Sinead O'Connor documentary by Catherine Ferguson. And you see Sinead go through that, that journey too of like shaving the head. And somehow there's like this, I don't know, it's like a liberation or something. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Brittany also had her moment, right? Like of, yes. of sort of, and, and I mean, she got so much shit for it, but... I think it really was sort of in response to like saying like, no, you can't have this anymore. You can't have me in that way anymore. You know, it's, it's both a refusal and an act of sort of 
of sort of claiming a different kind of a space for yourself that feels really necessary. And I think the fact that we get to do that, um, the fact that we have so much agency over that, I think is a really beautiful thing. I think this paints in particular the sink and it is a sink and there is all hair clippings and this is a self-portrait right but the the you're not present but your hair is and this was a record of a hurried haircut as you're saying about I'm not going to put up with this anymore I think I read that it was I hope this isn't too sensitive post breakup and you were like having a slight Britney moment potentially (laughs) so then maybe there is maybe there is some humor in there you can play with in retrospect but this 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 is a self-portrait again but it's like a sink full of your hair clippings and we look at you now and people will look at you now and you have very short cropped hair Mm -hmm. yeah I mean this is longer than it's been in like in a couple years um yeah, I mean, I, I think it, it was sort of like that thing did happen in like the aftermath of a breakup. And I think I just needed, I needed something in my life to change, like really immediately. Like I needed to feel something different. And I think that felt like the most accessible way that I could make that happen for myself and feel good about it, you know? Have you, is there something therapeutic in that painting or is it quite triggering to see that now that moment or have you repaired from that experience i i feel like the painting isn't so tied to the experience itself you know like like i think the painting like the act of painting to me feels very different than the act of whatever experience might have like actually informed the painting itself um Painting is really therapeutic. Painting is really hard. Um, <laughs> is it? Yeah. You find painting hard? I think painting is incredibly hard. Yeah. I think I, I, I feel very affirmed because I've been reading Amy Silverman's um, faux pas, like her like, collection of essays. Um, and she has this like bit on how difficult painting is. And I, I just, like, just the other day, I like, Xeroxed it and hung it up in my studio. because like, see, see, it is hard. Um, but yeah, why, why so is much. it, why is it hard? If you could, if you could then what Amy Silman said in yourself, what is it about painting that's hard then? And why do you, why have you chosen this as your vocation? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm going to borrow a lot of the way that she articulates it because I think she does it so well. Um, you know, she talks about how like making a painting is like, contending with so much materially, right? Like you're contending with the surface, you're contending with paint, color, drawing, zone, sort of treatment, style, the entire history of painting, which you are aware of, but also not, intention, chance. Like it, it's kind of like a like a, a moment where like all of these things come together in the studio, in the practice and the process of painting. You know, and sometimes they lead to like really magical outcomes. And sometimes you know how you got there. And sometimes you have no idea absolutely how you got there. And you try to repeat it and it never happens again. And sometimes you're like making a painting that you're like, oh, I absolutely know how to make this painting. And then like at the end of the day, you're like, what's going, like, what's happening? Why is this painting like just not, you know, like, like, I think it's, it's like not to sort of like mystify painting so much, you know, like it is a lot about like tools and strategies and, and sort of coming from like a certain informed, like practice-based position. But I also think it's like absolute magic and, and ridiculous when it happens and when it works, you know. I guess you're chasing that feeling the whole time. I guess that's what, that's what creativity is, isn't it? 
chasing that feeling <laughs> when you feel like it all synergizes it all it's all kind of firing yeah in a lot of ways and it doesn't always right like again to use like mindfulness as a metaphor like the the sort of one of the best ways that i've heard it described is that all you can do is like show up for the practice and create the conditions for something to happen but you can't guarantee that every time something will happen and i think that's exactly what bathing is like at least for me it's such a funny balance between kind of academic rigor and talent, in a sense, you know, the actual ability to create the artwork um, versus the intention and the idea and the image, you know, the, the, the decision to, I don't know, if we think about one of your paintings from um, last year, which was the chest hair with a necklace, and it's this intense painting. I mean, academically, it's an amazing painting, but the intention to decide to paint that, that chest, you know, it's like the combination of those two skills um, or, you know, forces in a way that unite, that somehow then create the magic. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think that that sort of makes me think of just going back to the first thing I said, like, you know, like sort of so much of being a painter to me is like being open to like the world around me, um, you know, and paying attention and, and sort of being receptive and, yeah, just, just showing up, showing up, paying attention. It, it really comes out of that. The surface keeps coming up a lot. And I think for me, the thing that I really respond to in your work and something which I think is incredibly unique to you is this kind of mist that comes over certain works or this blur. The, the, the bather we were talking about, it's like there's steam in the room. Uh, there's these works with these, and I like the fact that you call them non-human animals, but I like the fact you refer to them as non-human. It gives them agency. There's this mist around this incredible painting. I think it's about like 18 cats and I think it's called The Gathering. And there's this mist around it. And then then one of the self-portraits is Otter. There's like this blur and this mist that I feel is incredibly unique to you. How, how do you achieve that? And what is that? And, and you, you select that that isn't constant in all of your work sometimes there's something it's really razor sharp it's really in focus and in other works are really out of focus and blurred and i really respond to those ones yeah yeah i think the incorporation of that mode of working um and that sort of like particular treatment of things really came from a desire to have something that created attention to my emphasis on touch in the paintings. Like I wanted something that would live either like in opposition to that or like, like push that sort of language of like a really intimate um, sort of like idea of touch and mark making. Um, and so those, those more like atmospheric marks, which are all like, like that, that's all done with like an airbrush. Um, oh, it is. It's done with an airbrush, yeah, okay? Because it yeah, feels yeah, yeah. like dreamy nostalgia. It, it plays into all of that energy. Yeah, so it is an atmospheric mark, you know, because it is aerated. It's it's sort of like paint that has been aerated as it deposits onto the canvas, and so I'm not sort of touching the canvas in the same way that I I usually do, or or I do in other works, you know. Um, and I think it, it sort of sort of having those two modes of mark making come together on like a single surface really became a way to talk about like memory, like reality, you know, like the, the sort of the confines of it or like what sort of different ideas of presence, like what is a real presence and what is not. And I think 
a lot of ideas of like fantasy, fantasy memory, um, desire, recollection, like all, like all of that sort of gets, becomes like a part of the work um, in the way that something And tenderness. It yeah. makes it tender. It makes it soft and and like we keep using the word dreamy, but like, mm. yeah, it it feels it feels close. It feels like a touch. You know what I mean? It feels like breath in some ways. It's really really beautiful. I also feel like in your recent five panel work, um, Return to Water, you it sort of gave a new clarity to those two forces, those two types of painting that you seem to love because you have five panels but then you have like the very clear alligator um and then behind it you've got this very airbrushed water reference i yeah. guess um can you speak a bit about that work because i found it really fascinating yeah. it almost looks like there's kind of i don't know religious beads or something as well or on on one one or two of the panels yeah how did the crocodile it's a crocodile isn't it rather than alligator yeah. and yeah, it's it's, crocodile. it's um, oh, u- unique sorry, yeah. to uh south asia isn't it mm-hmm. yeah I mean, again, it was part chance encounter, part, um, you know, maybe something that was already in the back of my head. So it, it's a Guryal crocodile, which is a species that is native to South Asia. It's also critically endangered. Um, and I think there's some captive populations in the U.S. and, and maybe other places. Um, but I have been thinking about water a lot in the work. Um, you know, like even the, the bather paintings were kind of coming from this concern with water as like an environment, thinking of water as an environment that also touches the body that is submerged within it. Um, and sort of thinking about like sort of mystical or, or more symbolic like references to water as like this really transformative force that sort of cleanses, that is, a, is both life giver and destroyer that has all of these associations with it. Um, and I was thinking about the shrine back at home that, so like I was thinking about water bodies that, I'm familiar with or or that are around me or that I have had a relationship with. And, and the shrine kind of came up that has um, a, a sort of a little lake with around, I, I think allegedly like 150 or 200 crocodiles in it of a different species, not the same species, but, but crocodiles. And I sort of was, you know, already thinking about that in the studio. And during that time, I happened to go to the Peabody Museum with a friend of mine. Um, and we went into their collections in the herpetology collection and met the collection manager who was really wonderful about showing us around. And we'd been planning to sort of work from observation um, that day. And, you know, he kind of was like, he asked us like what we wanted to see. And I was like, oh, do you happen to have any crocodiles? And they were like, yes, which one would we want? And I was like, I don't know, do you have any like South Asian crocodiles? And they were like, yes, many. And I was just like, I think I was like so taken aback by that whole experience of a like just sort of the embodied experience of being in like the collection of a natural history museum, which is, I mean, it's again for me, it's like a really intense sort of it was a really intense encounter and continues to be because I've continued to work with them. Um, just like being in this like almost like it kind of feels like a library stack, but like filled with like containers of like little animal bodies and bones and 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 things from like all over the world uh, it's really intense and you know so so I basically so I discovered that they have this collection of very old crocodiles which are no longer found in Pakistan they're found in India and Nepal and other parts of South Asia but they don't they don't exist in Pakistan anymore um, I think for, for some decades now and I was just fascinated by the whole experience but I think mostly I just felt so compelled by it like I kind of kept returning and, and wanting to 
spend time with them and wanting to bait them and wanting to sort of continue having this encounter with them. And, and I think a lot of the work kind of happens like that. Like there's, there's a compulsion before there's necessarily like a logical reason for, for it. Um, and I think over time, sort of painting them from observation, spending time with them, and then also going back home and visiting the shrine and, and traveling to other sites, um, other water bodies in, in the region that I was thinking about it became clear that there was something about sort of these two sites that I wanted to put in conversation with each other, like the, the, the crocodile as a specimen um, in this location context and, you know, crocodiles and, and people and whatever, like, like environments in that location context, you know, so that five panel work kind of became the, the you know like that was what was born of of that desire and of that engagement um, and and you're right to pick up on like the religious uh, sort of like reference there the the flanking panels on either end are paintings of garlands of roses roses and jasmine which are sort of used in like South Asian culture um, in in both like like celebration and mourning. They're also like, like a really important material um, like aspect of shrine culture as well. Like you kind of, you take them to the shrine with you, you lay them down um, on the grave of, of the saint who's buried there. Um, so I think it, it sort of, it was a way to evoke all of those things and, and sort of my desire for the crocodiles that I encountered at the Piban Museum to have this like you know mythic return almost a return to place but also like a return to like death in some ways because in this moment they are like I find them to be suspended right like they are dead but their bodies are also in like these jars of ethanol where they're just going to be forever yeah I mean that's what I respond to is these they're specimens in jars and you, and you they're kind of a few of them are kind of bent backwards or they're not in a comfortable position like some of them are like as if you're seeing an alligator or a crocodile in its full form but then there's these they're kind of contorted almost abstracted like uh you know quite uncomfortable looking crocodiles but then I've realized that they're in these jars and it's such a incredible observation it's so beautiful yeah, I mean, the, the, so there's two reasons for the distortion. There's like, you know, of course, like the physical distortion of like the animal in this jar and sort of, you know, often it's longer than the jar is. So, you know, the head is sort of bent a certain... Yeah, that happens. But then there's also a distortion that happens in the act of observation because I'm painting them while they're in the containers that they're in. So I'm seeing them through the glass of the container and both the, the curved glass and the ethanol sort of offer this sort of visual distortion that I'm really interested in. Um, to, to me, it speaks to almost like a, a, like in my desire to paint them from that like perspective, like I'm interested in how they cannot be fully seen, how they're not permanently available or like all information about them is not sort of accessible as it would be under like a scientific gaze, you know, so so it's almost like a refusal in that way to to make the animal perfectly visible um, to a viewer. And are they happy for you to paint from life in there? Do you go and turn up with like an easel and a, a canvas and, and spend hours doing those? I mean pretty much, yeah. I I mean 
honestly, they've been wonderful. Like they've been like so welcoming and generous with their time. Like I, and I, I'm continuing to work with them, like, you know, like over the next probably year or so, like I'm continuing to work with, with their collection, but yeah, I just, I, I show up, they give me, they give me a little table space and I set up with my paint and I get to work. Do you work from photos ever? Um, I do in the studio, um, but not for this series. I think for this series, it feels important to, to paint from life. So I'd love to talk about, uh, we talked about crocodiles and then we talked about non-humans and that would be the cats and dogs that appear through your work and especially cats are a big thing and rob's got two cats i've got a dog we are we are your audience uh, but also their, their fur as well because i think that their hair like their fur oh, in yeah, your paintings yeah, yeah. is so masterful and that idea of touch because there's one of um two cats uh kind of hugging and sleeping together yeah, you know, facing like each other c- cuddling essentially facing each other and you just feel this kind of massive fur and i just want to reach into the painting and touch them and cuddle them like they're so cute <laughs> what 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 do, what do cats and dogs um what what are they saying for you and and, and what do they kind of represent and you keep returning to them hmm. i think the idea of the non-human i think really began with sort of looking to like the animals that were in my own surroundings. I mean, all of the cats that I've painted, I've known in my personal context, you know, like some of them are my own pets um, back at home in Karachi. And some of them are, are like street cats that I've maybe cared for or like, you know, other people's cat, like my sibling's cat or, or other friends sort of cats that I'm, I'm very close to. Um, I think the sort of, interest in dogs and cats and plants and sort of other, you know, a, a sort of like the environment and everything that is present within it really came from a desire to sort of think about relationships beyond the human, you know, like, like, like I think there's, in, that there's really like a, a way that we, um, foreground like the human in our concerns in our everyday life in our politics in like our cosmologies and just the way that we understand our place in the world and I think it's important for me to think about ecosystems and everything that is present within the ecosystem and you know it, it had to start from the relationships that I was already a part of so the cats and the dogs kind of came from there um, and continue to be sort of these you know, like non-human beings who live in such close proximity to us, right? Like, it's like, we li- like, like my cat would sleep with me on my bed. Like, some people don't do that with their dogs, but like, you know. No, like, my dog's under the cover with me, head in the pillow. Yes, there you yes, go. yes. They, yes. They, have, they have full agency. <laughs> they are living creatures with their own souls and their own personalities. They're not, they're not my possession. They are their own being, even though I'm, I have the privilege of caring for them or the right. burden of privilege of caring for them. They have agency, and I feel like with your works, these animals all have agency. They are as important, as you're saying, as your human connections, and I, I think that's so beautiful. How is it navigating the art world for you now then, Fizza? Because you have um, you have attention, and obviously we're here today, and we're, we're talking about we transfer and we present, and you're going to go on that platform, and that has like millions of people monthly kind of sharing files, and this would be seen. What is it like being having your work collected and what is it like being an artist in 2023 and emerging artist right now? Hmm. I mean, it's great. <laughs> like I, 
you know, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful to, to do the thing that I love, that I sort of, you know, like a, like a primary way that I want to be a person in the world and, and, and form relationships with the world and, and everyone and everything in it. And it's, it's like wild and amazing and, and sort of a privilege to have an audience for it and people interested in it and, and sort of engagement. I think I also have been sort of really lucky to have like really supportive relationships and, and yeah, like, I mean, it was you mean amazing prof- to professional work relationships. Professionally, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, you know, it's a very contemporary in India. Yeah, pre Absolutely. Love. I mean, they've been phenomenal. Um, and I, I sort of love working with them. I love collaborating with them. Um, you know, like, you have been wonderful to work with as well. And Thank you. Yeah, it's just, it's been nice to sort of, like, take this thing that happens so privately in the studio, you know, like, one-on-one time with between me and like the surface of a painting and to like send it out into the world and have it be seen and appreciated and, and um, engaged with is I think that's always going to be a wild experience. There was a really beautiful conversation online, which Russell shared with me a while ago, um, where you are emailing uh, a friend of yours and you're, you're kind of talking about um, different questions. So um, it's Aziz um, Sohail. And it was on this website, uh, which people can look up, which is South South Art. And um, it's titled Reflections on the Artistic pra- Practice of Fiza. And within that, you mentioned the studio being like a stomach and that it's a place for like digestion and i'd never heard that before yes and i a wanted to talk about that and then the other thing that came up within that conversation that correspondence between um you both was this idea of autofiction and about editing and what you choose to include and not include and how that can almost construct an image i guess can we speak about, about both of those things i love the idea of digestion yeah <laughs> yeah that was a quote i i'm gonna try and remember who it's it's a correspondence between John Berger John, and John Berger and someone, wasn't it? Yeah, um, it's, Leon um, Leon Kossoff. Yeah. That's right. Yes, and I think I I, I read it in, um, I think it's the shape of a bucket. It's like a collection of his essays. Um, it's I mean it's a beautiful uh, correspondence which I often go back to. You know, in which like they're kind of talking about like the space of specifically Leon Kwasov's studio and how he sort of relates to like painting from observation primarily, um, but also just like the artist studio in general and how it's become this like really flashy, like trendy thing to have, like, for instance, like an artist monograph, like, you know, um, like images of like the artist studio, how that used to be so much more private than it is now, where it's like so easy to see even like, I mean, now, you know, live in the age of Instagram where like studio pictures are everywhere and I mean I love looking at them too you know it's, it's fascinating to see like an artist set up and, and things in progress and like the, the gunk of like what actually makes the work possible um, but he, he kind of talks about it as a space of digestion and I love thinking of the studio as a space where all of these things kind of get broken down and like, I mean, digestion is a process in which like acid, like stomach acid is acting on like things that enter the stomach. Right. And I I love thinking about the studio where like similarly, like maybe this act of painting or like the act of making work is where there's like a breakdown and like 
a, a, a sort of a churning and uh, a sort of like an like acidity and like there's like something gross about it, but also something beautiful about it because like nutrients come of it. Um, yeah, I just I, I find it to be like a really productive thing to think about, you know, where you kind of like take all of these things that you're thinking about and you like put them together and you sort of like treat them to different sort of processes and sometimes it sort of turns into food and sometimes it turns into poop, you know, like like both are perfectly valid in the context of <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And then and then what about the fiction, the auto fiction? Because I, yeah. I just love that analogy. Yeah, I mean I I I I love autofiction. Um you know, I, I think it's it's sort of such an incredible way to think about, I think, multiple things. One, like, you know, the lived experience as so both being, like, co-created constantly, right? Like, like where there is, like, a, like a storytelling that is happening. Um, but also, like, like what autofiction does is it, it sort of is the space of autobiography where, like, elements of fantasy or fiction have been inserted in order to reveal something about the present moment or about like the conditions of whatever, like the autobiographical um, moment might be. I think so much of my work is, comes from my own experiences, but there is a degree of invention in there as well. And I think increasingly so I, I've been also just thinking a lot about fantasy in general in, in the studio and in my work, you know, like, creating moments that maybe have existed in some context, but not quite in the way that they exist in the work. Um, and this sort of like reconfiguring or like revisiting of, of a moment or of a space and having it mean something different or having it perform in a different way in the way that it exists in the work. Mm. It's also like perceptions of time, because I think even if you think about the crocodiles, um, you know, who, who are obviously verging on the extinct in the 1970s from what I've read um, but it's interesting even the animal's perception of time versus a human's perception of time and then and then just all of these kind of connections through fantasy through I don't know space through all, you know I don't know and even hair I, I think hair represents time so there, there was something just within it as well about that for me yeah definitely I think desire comes up a lot for me in thinking about like autofiction and fantasy both you know like this element of wanting something to be different or like an aspiration or, um, or even like a nostalgia, you know, like, like hearkening back to a moment, like, like in, if, if we're thinking about time, right. Like either like a future that is possible um, or a past that has, that has sort of gone, but also like, I think in the space of autofiction, how that could potentially become like really cyclical you know, where it's not linear anymore, where, like, time starts being really, um, like, like there's the, the painting um, of cats, like, one of the cat paintings called A Gathering for Bindianti. It's all the cats that I've known in my life that are kind of hanging out in the painting together. Oh, wow, you know? that's what it is. You're bringing them yeah. all together. I'm bringing them all together, and they've never shared space. <laughs> exactly, you know, like, I kind of was like, I want them to sort of have this moment of, of, of sort of like a gathering is how I've been thinking about a lot of the work recently, a lot of the multi-figure works, both human and non-human is like, you know, where I'm like creating these like gatherings that are completely fictitious, but also not because in some ways, like the gatherings live inside me, but in different timelines and different spaces, but in the space of painting, because painting isn't tied to like the time and space of the real world. 
things can exist differently. And I think that's one of the exciting things about also making figurative work for me in painting is to be able to sort of like take something that has existed maybe in my life that I am familiar and intimate with and to sort of like experience it in a different way. Yeah, bring it into the present. Oh my God, I'm obsessed with that. I love the fact that these are all the cats in your life throughout your life. <laughs> yeah. I love so that good. so much. Right. And also, what, what is reality like yeah. if it's living within you sure. and that's a memory and, and something you can imagine, then why does that not exist? It does. So, like, that's, oh, it's so beautiful. I love you. Yes, big, <laughs> such a, this is just amazing. Well, before we get onto our final questions, I just want to hear the story about how a teacher once described painting as mud and how that gave you big inspiration. Yeah, shout out to Matt Phillips. Um, he was the one who really pushed me towards painting as well, like like oil painting in undergrad. Um, I was obsessed with drawing. I, I still am, you know, like I, I, in some ways I feel, you know, like, are you a drawer? Are you a painter? Like that kind of question. Like, I, I think, I mean, it depends on the day you ask me. Anyway, um, I remember him sort of like, when I was starting to paint, talk about essentially like painting as alchemy right like the fact that like yeah it's like paint that you're getting in the tube and you're squeezing it out and it's color and it's all of these things but it's also just like mud it's like the earth and dirt and plants and leaves and like pigment that comes from all of these places and you kind of take it and you turn it into this like singular image and there is something really alchemical and magical about that and I think it's still sort of that idea I still hold within me as I'm making a painting, as I look at painting as well, you know, I mean, there's like the really real material reality of maybe not so much anymore because so many pigments are synthetic, but like within the history of painting, like where pigments are sourced for, what were they from, what the conditions were for that to happen as well. Like, you know, travel, trade, colonization, all of those things get embedded into that. Um, But also just like, the material reality of being in the studio and taking this dirt and, and sort of crab and like turning it into an image that maybe is beautiful or, or speaks to maybe certain ideas of beauty or elegance or grace or, you know, all, all of the sort of things that we like to talk about in painting. Well, I always feel a great amount of love in your work and, and tenderness and healing and repairing. And I feel like if, if mud can bring all those emotions out then it's a magical thing yeah i mean i also you know not to get too like (laughs) too off track about it but i think i I also think about like the human body as like a vessel and as like sort of you know like like within certain cosmologies like being made of mud and like that relationship of like working with like a muddy earthy um material like i think that also feels really important to me yeah Great. So we're going to get into our uh, trademark questions for Talk Art now. And the first one is, if you could do an art heist, you could steal nicely any work of art in the world for yourself, what would it be and why? So my, like, long-term response to that would be um, there's a Mirandi in the Yale University Art Gallery, which is probably my favourite Mirandi of all time. It's, mm. I think it's, like, from the 70s, and it's you know, it's, it's one of his still lives in which the drops of all of the objects kind of collapse into like visually like collapse into the same gray as like the tabletop that they're on. And there's just like such a wonderful 
relationship that that creates between like the objects and the surface that they sit on where like in an instance they become one but then in an instance they also become discrete objects and there's this like back and forth that happens between that and I remember seeing that painting on like a projector like in the early days when I started painting um and just being obsessed with it and and feeling like wow like this is what painting can do like this is what still life can do like that is ridiculous to me um and it still is a painting like I you know while I'm in New Haven like I, I visit the gallery often and I'm always looking at that painting and I love I, I don't think I'll ever die of looking back at that painting yeah, I think Mirandi is the master of kind of neutral tones. I, sh- I showed when I was decorating my house recently, I said I want it to feel like a Mirandi sure. painting and I used yes. those as references. Yes. <laughs> the Mirandi grey. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, the other question we ask every guest is what is your favourite colour? My favourite colour currently is like a violet. All right. It's just like a really bright, crazy violet. Has that entered your work yet? It it has entered my palette. Maybe not. Um, maybe not unmixed onto the surface of a painting, but it is on my palette. What is the best advice you've received so far when it comes to your art? Is I think to show up for the practice. You know, to just show up for the practice and to do it over and over again, and to be sort of gentle with it, but also rigorous, and and the rest will happen. Brilliant. What are you working on um, next then? What, what's coming up for you? And I, I think, uh, w- would we be lucky enough to see you at Freeze possibly this year? Yeah, so I'm showing at Freeze London um, with Javeli. I, I think some of the crocodiles, the, the five final series will be on view. Um and then I have some spring projects that I'm working towards. There's a, a presentation at Art Basel Hong Kong with Javeri as well, which Brilliant. I'm really excited about. And um, I'm also excited about a solo show in San Francisco with Mickey Meng um, <gasps> in the Chinatown Love. space. So Love. that's what kind of is happening in the studio right now, is working towards both of those shows. Well, so exciting! It's very exciting. I like Mickey yeah. Meng. Mickey Meng worked with Francesca Mollett, who I'm a big fan yes, of. Yes, that's right. Yeah, she, I she mean, big, she's wonderful. Yeah, yeah. Well, this has been incredible, right, Rob? Yeah, I've loved it. Thank you so much. Thank you it's so very much. Intimate, just like the work, I loved it. <laughs> yeah, thank yes. you so much for like having I'm me on. Sat with you. Yeah. Oh, and we will link to um, Javiri Contemporary, and you can discover more of Fizz's work there. But also, you can go to fizzacatry dot com, and um, there's an archive there of the paintings, drawings, um, yeah, all kinds of things. And you're and on Instagram. You're on Instagram. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's F K L M N O P. F K L M O P. Fab. And uh, we will also be linking to WeTransfer because you will have images of your work that will be available to see on the WePresent, WeTransfer platform. So that's incredibly exciting. Do you, do you feel excited yeah. about that, that they, it, that's going to get out there on on that platform? Oh, my God. Yes, absolutely. I've been using WeTransfer since like, I mean, as long as I've been, like, like, like I think since it probably came, became available. But yeah, I think it's a really exciting space. I, I love what they've been doing with their art features and yeah i'm excited to be on there they actually founded in 2009 
and it, oh. it's kind of it seems like a long time ago now doesn't it it does I, I, I first discovered them through music and um i also love what they do to support musicians but also all, all creators really because it's essentially a platform um of creative people who founded it and then it's creators for creators i think it's such a good like yeah, right. tagline in a way i love that and they have 80 million users as well it's like every month in 190 countries it's like wild to think how many people sort of are using it it's fantastic That's like hilarious. every episode we do of talk art we use them you know to send the episodes around and to our editor and all that kind of stuff it's really funny yeah that's how i get all my installation shots and um mm. you know <laughs> i probably wouldn't be able to share work online if it wasn't for retransfer yeah yeah well thank you we transfer yeah, thank long you live we transfer. most of all thank you Fizz. Thank it's you. been amazing been incredible thank you so much for having me on this was so much fun i really loved our conversation we'll be back very soon thanks, thanks for, listening. for listening thanks Fizz. Bye. bye bye You've been listening to Talk Art with Robert Diamond and Russell Tovey. Follow us on Instagram at Talk Art, where you can view images of all artworks discussed in today's episode, with music by Jack Northover. Subscribe to Talk Art at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Give us a rating and write us a comment. Thanks for listening.